So with that, uh, I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of James. Uh, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20 uh, is where we find ourselves today. And if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, uh, page 1013 uh, is where you'll find uh, today's text. Uh, A couple years ago, I was with a a small group of other pastors and church planters, and we had the opportunity to spend the day with a man named Paul Miller. Now, some of you are perhaps familiar with Paul Miller, some not. Uh, He's an author of several really helpful books. Uh, Probably the one that he's most well-known for is a book called A Praying Life, Uh, and it's a fantastic book. I would highly recommend that book. We spent the day with Paul Uh, in this group of church planters, talking about a variety of different things, all related to spiritual formation. And of course, Paul being uh, an expert, so to speak, on prayer, we spent a lot of our time talking about prayer. Uh, I have a lot of notes from my time that day. I learned a lot. But there's really one moment from that time that is forever etched into my brain. During this discussion about prayer, uh, one of my friends, uh, who's part of this, this group of pastors, Uh, started to ask Paul how he could make prayer uh, a more meaningful and significant and regular part of his life uh, and of his ministry. So like me, uh, and maybe like you as well, this pastor friend of mine shared how he's had times in his life where he has been uh, faithful and consistent in his prayer life, but then other times where prayer has essentially been non-existent. And he was wondering, like, why is that? And so he asked, He asked Paul, why don't I pray more often? Uh, Why don't I pray more consistently? And Paul, very calmly, uh, very intently, turned from the other direction he was facing and and looked directly into the eyes uh, of this friend of mine. And he did that for an uncomfortably long period of time. Um, maybe, maybe 30 seconds was like the actual amount of time that passed, but 30 seconds of silence when you're intently looking into the eyes of another person in the middle of a discussion, that feels like an eternity. It feels like a really long time. And, and then after this 30-second gaze, he said this, the reason that you don't pray more often is because you are far too confident in yourself and your own abilities. And shockingly, no one had any more questions for Paul Miller the rest, the rest of that afternoon. Okay, that could just have easily been me asking that question and getting that response back. I struggle to pray consistently and faithfully. I confessed that to our elders when we were away at a retreat a couple weeks ago. It's one of the places in my life uh, where I'm really most prone to functionally live like an atheist or like a deist, uh, as if the existence of God is really inconsequential And that at the end of the day, what really makes things happen, what really makes progress happen, is more of my time, more of my energy, more of my effort, uh, more of my exertions. So the end of James's letter is really this paradigm reset button that I need all of the time in my life. And if you've been with us for this series, we're finishing James today, this letter is nothing if not a call to action. It's nothing if not that. And James is going to end this letter with the same kind of charge that he's been giving throughout it, calling people to a very active and sacrificial faith. But in conjunction with that, here at the end of the letter, he elevates the importance and the power and the significance of prayer. So we have reached the end of the book of James, and this last text is a book about prayer and about pursuit. So I invite you now to listen with open ears 
to this book that we love. This is James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Almighty God, you have spoken in these last days through your Son. Let now your written word be heard by each of us. Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand that we may not refuse your calling or ignore your voice. May we all be taught by you through your powerful word and bring our every thought captive to obeying Christ. To the glory and honor of your holy name we pray. Amen. So this text shapes our answers to three really critical questions about prayer and pursuit. When to pray and pursue, who should pray and pursue, and why to pray and pursue. So first, let's talk about when to pray and pursue. As we read this text, did you, did you hear the repetition of the word anyone? There's a repetition of the word anyone. Four times it's in these verses. And each time, it's highlighting a different set of circumstances or an emotional response to circumstances. So is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone cheerful? Is anyone among you sick? And then down in verse 19, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. Try to name a moment of your life where this doesn't apply. Try to name a moment of your life where that doesn't apply. Whether it's you personally or someone that you are close to, someone that you care about, isn't someone always suffering? And isn't someone always cheerful? And isn't someone always sick? And isn't someone always wandering? So when is the right time to pray and pursue? The answer is always. Always. Let's back up for just a minute this morning and talk about the Bible. Many people look to the Bible as as if it's a topical reference book. So when this circumstance happens, I flip to these passages that deal with that circumstance, and I apply this specific truth to that specific situation. Now, that's one way to use Scripture. The, The Bible has specific truths that are applicable to certain situations, and it requires wisdom to know what to apply in which ones. But that's not primarily what the Bible is. The Bible is primarily... God's revelation of himself. It's the recounting of the great work of God that he has done and he is doing and that he will do and and what that means for all of creation, including you and including others. And in that story of God, because God's kingdom is already present and at hand and working, but its fullness is not yet consummated, you and people near you will always be suffering, will always be cheerful, will always be sick, will always be 
wondering. And therefore, think about it this way, life itself is a continual call to prayer. Every one of your circumstances is an invitation. Every one of your circumstances is a prompt to pray. And that prayer will be different depending, of course, on those circumstances. When you're suffering, you cry out to God for endurance or for mercy. When you are sick, you cry out to God for healing. When you're cheerful, you cry out to God in praise and in gratitude. And isn't that one often the hardest? Isn't that one often the hardest? When we're suffering and sick, there's something about that that makes it obvious that we're not as competent or self-sufficient or capable as we like to think that we are. But when circumstances are good and we're, and we're cheerful, that's often the time where we're most prone to forget God completely and assume that our cheerfulness is the result of our own efforts, that we've created a life that's good and cheerful and happy for us and we forget God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, pray without ceasing. A relatively well-known passage of scripture if you've been around the church for some period of time in your life. If you're like me, you hear that and you often think, well, that's a nice sentiment, isn't it? Who actually does that? Who has time for that? But think about it this way. Deep down, our failure to pray continually is not a time problem. It's not a capacity problem. It's a perception problem. It's a perception problem. It's a failure to see the kingdom of God unfolding in every circumstance, in every moment of our lives. If we actually were connecting each and every moment of our lives to this greater story of God, we would reflexively cry out to God, sometimes for mercy and sometimes with gratitude. But it would become second nature for us not to take these long extended times of prayer and silence and solitude, but to reflexively cry out to God in whatever our circumstances were. Notice here, though, there's a second part of this reflex that we are both to cry out to God and to call for other people. Particularly when sick, James is saying here, call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over you. Let them anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. We'll talk more about that in just a second. Here's the big idea. The circumstances of our lives, good, bad, or otherwise, they are meant to be this constant compulsion out of isolation and into relationship with God and with other people. Whatever is happening in your life, reflexively, connecting that to the story of God, we cry out to God and we call for others. The pervasiveness of sin in your own life, the pervasiveness of sin in this world, will always drive you inward. Will always turn you in on yourself. So instead, let your circumstances, again, whatever they might, they might be, jolt you out of that isolation, out of that death trap. Let them be instead this continual reminder of your, of your need, of your dependence, and of your existence within this greater story of the kingdom of God. Let your circumstances compel you outward to cry out to God and to call for others. Second, who should pray and pursue? That's when to pray and pursue. Who should pray and pursue? James gives a twofold answer to this question in these verses. The answers are elders and everyone. Encompasses a lot of people. Elders and everyone. So first, elders. Uh, elders are servant leaders of the local church. And the fact that James is writing this in the middle of the first century means that within a decade or so, after Jesus died and rose and ascended to heaven, the norm and the prescribed practice in churches throughout first century Palestine was to be led by a group of elders. 
Acts chapter 6 teaches us that uh, elders, their primary role and responsibility in the church, they are to be those who oversee the ministry of prayer and the ministry of the Word of God. But as an extension of prayer and the Word of God, throughout the New Testament, elders are also referred to as shepherds or under-shepherds of this flock that is the body of Christ, the church. So Jesus is the one who's described in Scripture as the shepherd, the good shepherd. Elders are under-shepherds. And therefore, prayer and pursuit are roles that elders need to step into in each and every local church. And that's why James says here that those who are sick should call for the elders and let them pray over you. This gets debated a little bit sometimes in the book of James. But what James is talking about here is physical sickness, physical ailments. He also talks about uh, spiritual healing. He talks about the forgiveness of sins. But the language in the context in verse 14 and the beginning of verse 15 makes it clear. He's talking here about physically, physical bodily sickness. And the elders are to respond by both anointing the sick with oil and by praying what James calls the prayer of faith. So let's talk for just a moment about each of those things. When, when people are anointed with oil in the Bible, that's because they are being consecrated. Uh, they are being set apart. Sometimes that's kings. Uh, kings of, of Israel and, and Judah were consecrated, were anointed with oil, set apart for that role of leadership. Sometimes it's leaders in the local church. James also here says that's also for people who are sick. So where some are set apart for leadership, here specifically, anointing the sick symbolically sets that person apart to the special attention and care of God. It's not that God doesn't care if you don't anoint them with oil, but it's setting them apart in a tangible way to the care of of God. Historically, there's been a lot of confusion about what the prayer of faith is. So let's talk about that for a second. And, And what exactly here, when James says that God will raise him up, like what is James expecting God to do in this sick person's life? It becomes clear here that James is looking to something in the near future. He's not talking about raising him up as in like the life to come when we all are given a new body that, that is free from sicknesses and ailments. He's saying here their sick person is actually bedridden. They call for the elders and they literally are praying over them, standing at their bedside over them. And James is expecting here that this prayer of faith will raise this person up be, and in other, in other words, make them well again sometime in the near future. So I say that to say this, we need to be cautious of over-spiritualizing or over-allegorizing texts in the Bible like this. Why do we do that? Because we're cynical that God doesn't actually answer our prayers. At least that's one of the reasons why I do it. People who are prone to the kind of cynicism I find in my own heart struggle to believe that God can actually right now, in this moment, in this life, physically and bodily heal someone. And if I think that way, Well, then when I read scripture like this, still trying to to be faithful, still trying to believe, I'm going to over-spiritualize or over-allegorize it and assume James must be talking about some kind of spiritual healing. So if that's you with me, what I would call you to is to fight that temptation. Don't over-spiritualize or over-allegorize this. At the same time, fight the other temptation that's always present here, which is to make this into some kind of formula. Maybe you've experienced this in your own life, and if you have, on behalf of the church, as one elder, I'm sorry. And, and God forgive us for the countless times and the countless abuses in the history of the church where someone who's been sick has been told, if you only had more faith, if you only had a little bit 
more faith. God forgive us for piling spiritual guilt on top of physical suffering and crushing people with our own formulaic nonsense. Look, whose faith is the prayer of faith? It's not the sick person's. It's the prayer of the elders. So if in your need for a formula you need to blame somebody, blame me. Blame the elders of the church. Don't blame the sick person when healing doesn't happen. Even that, though, won't be enough. Think about this. When Jesus walked and ministered on this earth, he did not function formulaically. When he healed people, half the time he healed people in direct response to their faith. He would say things to them like, your faith has made you well. The other half the time, he would heal them in order to create faith where it was non-existent or to strengthen faith where it was weak. Sometimes he healed every single person that was brought to him. And other times he healed one person in the midst of a multitude of people who were sick and he left all the rest of them unhealed and he healed the one. Similarly, sometimes when Jesus healed people, the condition that he was healing them from was the result of their own sin. Other times it clearly was not. And that's why James says here, if, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So that means two things when James says that. One, uh, it is possible that your sickness and your suffering is the result of your own unrepentant sin. Don't rule that out. Don't rule that out. If you are perpetually sick, if you find yourself suffering some kind of a continual condition, that should become for us a, a, a call to reflection. It should become a call to self-examination to consider, are we persisting in some kind of unrepentant sin? Don't rule it out. But there is just a good a chance that it's not the result of your sin. So leave room for that in your, in your paradigm as well. And ever since Job's friends, which was a long time ago, otherwise well-meaning people turned sickness and suffering into this witch hunt for sin. And they add insult to injury when they do. The disciples themselves did the same thing in John chapter 9. They, they met this man who was born blind. And they assumed, well, that has to be the result of somebody's sin. So Jesus, who was it? Was it that man himself? Or was it his parents? Who sinned? And Jesus said to them, no, this is so the work of God might be displayed. That's why this man is the way he is. So here's the point in all this. The prayer of faith is a prayer of faith. And faith, by definition, is entrusting yourself to the perfect and good will of God. So you cry out to God, we cry out to God in our healing, but we do so remembering that just like salvation itself, healing always and ever belongs to the Lord. And we are not the actual gods in this equation praying to some person that responds to us and our requests magically because we say so. We pray to God, we cry out to God as God, as the one who has the power, only one who has the power to do the healing. And so a prayer of faith is always truly a prayer of faith. It's crying out to God, but it's trusting that he alone is the one that can heal according to his good purposes and will. And that's why, therefore, as James begins verse 16, this is not limited to those who serve as elders. And instead, what James says from there, it's every Christian's privilege and responsibility to pray and to pursue one another. Therefore, James says, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, that you may be healed. Last week, Pastor John shared some of our renewed and recommitment, um, our recommitted view and, and pursuit of discipleship here at Liberty Church. 
and how we're going to do that uh, in this new day post the home group sabbatical and not re-implementing home groups. As part of that, and we've talked about this at other times before in our church's past, uh, we t- John talked about the 55 one-anothering commandments of the New Testament. Here are two of them right here in this verse. We are to confess our sins not just to God, of course we do that, but we're also to confess our sins to one another. And we're not just to call the elders for prayer, we're to pray for one another. Some of you do this very well. Some of you do this very well, you've, you've learned, or maybe that's just more natural for you. May you continue in that. Others of you really need to step into this in a deeper way than you ever have before. And let me put it this way too this morning in full transparency. As an elder, I'm tired, and I get really tired. And we've got two other great elders here in Will and John. But together and individually, you'll find very often our margin is just razor thin. There's so much more that we would love to do that we find ourselves unable to do in shepherding and caring for for you as people. God willing, we're going to add a couple more elders to our elder team sometime during 2018. There's some things in the works there. And I'm thrilled about that. But I want you to think about this. The remedy, the actual remedy is not to just keep adding elders. When home groups were running, we actually had 20 elder caliber people serving as the leaders of those home groups. And you know what? Before we went into that period of a home group sabbatical, most of them were exhausted. Most of them were exhausted. Which is another important reason why we decided not to restart home groups. The actual remedy isn't just more elders and isn't just more leaders. The actual remedy is for more of us, for all of us, to step into this privilege and responsibility to pursue one another and to pray for one another. And so if you have built this unhealthy dependence on leaders of a church or on programs of a church to do these kinds of things for you, then what I would say to you this morning is that now it is time, man or woman, it is time, follower of Jesus, to stop assuming that it's someone else's responsibility and to truly step into both what is a privilege and a responsibility for you as a person in the, among the people of God, this role that you've been given to pray for and to pursue one another. James says here, and take heart at this, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Who is this righteous person? It's not some kind of super saint. It's not just someone who's an elder. It's you. It's you. If your faith is in Jesus and his finished work, that means his own righteousness has been imparted to you. It means that God hears your prayer. It means that Jesus himself is standing at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. Prayer is powerful in the hands of the humblest and lowliest Christian. So your prayers, men and women, they have great power as they are working. Will you believe that? And will you let it compel you to pray and to pursue one another? Now, you might feel unable to do this. And your anxiety level right now as I'm saying all of that is like through the roof. In that case, the way that you start pursuing is by inviting other people to pursue you. Call for the elders. Let other people know where you are and know your need so that they can actually pursue you. One anothering and relational pursuit in community requires both giving and receiving. And for probably 90% of you in the room, you know, capable, hardworking, 
disciplined men and women, the giving part is far easier than the receiving part. And when you're asked to receive care, and when you're asked to receive help from another person, that feels like death by a thousand paper cuts. But if everyone gives and no one receives, the church ceases to be the church. If, if everyone gives and no one receives, one anothering falls apart. So when you can give, give, and when you need to receive, call for others and receive. Third, why do we pray and pursue? We talked about when, we talked about who. Lastly, why do we pray and pursue? The answer is this. Because prayer and pursuit are the most common means through which God's supernatural power comes to bear in everyday life. The most common means through which God's supernatural power comes to bear in everyday life. God doesn't need us to reveal himself to the world. There have been plenty of examples in history of humanity where God has done that just fine on his own without any help from a human conduit. But most often and most commonly, the way that God shows up, the way that God works powerfully in the world is through people who have been created in his own image. is through people that he himself has rescued with his own saving power. And the example that James chooses here is fascinating. Elijah. Elijah, if you know his story from the Old Testament, was a prophet. He was a special chosen instrument of God. James doesn't mention that at all. What does James mention? That he was a man with a nature like ours. That he was nothing special. He was a human being just like you are, just like I am. How normal and common. So it wasn't Elijah in and of himself that brought this powerful intervention of God into the weather patterns of the ancient Near East for seven years. It was Elijah's prayer. It was that he cried out to God and that God heard him and responded to his prayer. Let that be a corrective if you're like me and functionally are a deist or an atheist when it comes to your prayer. Let that be a corrective for us. What my effort and exertion can never accomplish, what my role and my calling as an elder can never accomplish Every single follower of Christ can accomplish through your prayers of faith to God. Brothers and sisters, through your prayers, through your relational pursuit of one another, you're invited to participate in the supernatural power of God himself. Power to heal physically, like we've talked about some already. Also, and this is where James ends this entire letter, power to rescue souls from death. As the people of God, we are those who have been rescued from death by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as the rescued, in our prayers, in our relational pursuit of one another, we become God's means of advancing his rescue in the world and among other people. So in other words, we become rescued rescuers. It's one of our identities as the people of God in the world. You are a rescued rescuer. The wandering that James speaks of here is not limited to these huge and flagrant deviations and departures from the faith. In reality, anytime there's this big deviation, this big wandering from the truth of God, that's the result of a thousand tiny wanderings over the course of time. So that require, means that it requires us to be present in one another's lives, not just in these huge moments of crisis, but in the places where the small wanderings occur. It requires us to really pursue in not just those huge moments, those huge crisis moments, but in everyday life to call, to follow up, to get together, to listen, to plead with another person. It would seem 
that James has in mind here other Christians who are wandering. So men and women who claim to believe in Jesus, but who at present are living inconsistently with that profession. Isn't real life more complicated than that? Isn't real life a little more complicated than that? Here's what I mean. It's so often unclear when someone is wandering whether that person is a Christian who is straying or perhaps isn't a Christian at all or never was one in the first place. I'm assuming that you know people like that. I know people like that. And they they came to my mind often this week reading these last two verses of the entire letter of James. And if those people are in your mind, these are hard questions. I think of these friends of mine who currently have zero desire to know and to follow Jesus. But I remember for one or two of them very vividly these moments of their lives where not only was a desire there, but there was some faith and faithfulness and fruitfulness that was present, and I could see it. What was that? I don't know. I don't know. To this day, a couple of these people that come to mind, I don't know if they are Christians who are just in this extended period of time straying from what they really believe, or if they never were a Christian and they're more like that kind of soil that Jesus describes in his famous parable, the the rocky soil where the seed takes and it springs up quickly, but because there's no depth of soil, when suffering happens, they fall away. I I don't know. Ultimately, for those people, my privilege and my responsibility is actually the same. To love that person enough to want something different for them. To love that person enough to see that whatever that unknown heart-level reason is for why their life is what it is and looks what it looks like right now, that they are in need of rescue. The very same rescue that I myself have needed and continue to need in my own wanderings. See, before we ever pray for other people, as the people of God, we are those who have been prayed for. Jesus intercedes and has interceded for us. And before we ever pursue another person, before we ever go after them to try to bring them back to the truth, we are those who have been pursued by God, by the hound of heaven, as Francis Thompson's famous poem referred to him as. For this reason, because you have been prayed for and because you have been pursued by God, we pray and we pursue others. And in our prayers and in our pursuit, we participate in God's very rescue of souls from death, in God's own covering of a multitude of sins, through these common and everyday means of reaching out to people relationally, of crying out to God, of calling to other people, we are invited to see the supernatural power of God come to bear in our everyday lives. And so church, as we have reached the end of the book of James, and as James has charged us in this letter, may we be those who not only hear the word, but do the word of God. And in light of what James has said today, in every circumstance, may that compel you to cry out to God and to call for others. May you step into the privilege and responsibility it is to confess your sins to one another, to pray for one another, to pursue one another in this community that we call Liberty Church. And as participation in the supernatural power of God, the power of Christ which has saved your soul from death, may you bring back the wanderers from their wandering. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are the one who has pursued us and rescued us from death. 
You are the one who prays for us. You have prayed for your people in this world in your high priestly prayer. You prayed for us, your disciples, and all that they would reach through the gospel. You continue to pray for us. You are the one who, as we're going to sing about together in a moment, intercedes for us before the throne of God. So I pray this morning for the men and women of this room that we would be those who pray, that we would be those who pursue one another in light of the prayer and pursuit we have received from you. Would you do that in us, Holy Spirit? Would you strengthen us for that? Would you sustain our efforts in that? Would you remind us of really the supernatural power it is that comes to bear in everyday life when we cry out to you and when we step into relationships with this faithfulness that James has called us to? And we come to this table looking now again for the grace to do this, being reminded of the grace that is ours through the finished work of Jesus. May you strengthen us as we come today. We pray this in your name. Amen.